All right, I'm going to go in the intro now. All right, hit it. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 10 of Hip Squared, American Fantastic's pop culture podcast celebrating everything from the mainstream to the independent, weird, old, and local. Troy, how's it going? Mmm. Bourbon. <laughs> Bourbon. <laughs> yes. You getting your sip on? Mm-hmm. I like those um, gulping sounds. The <sighs> sounds of your internal... Uh, Warming up. Oh, my gosh. Bourbon has that, yeah. that like, it, it's got... It's like it's like wearing a winter coat on your throat. It's amazing. Yeah, it feels good. I haven't had any bourbon, I think, since uh, the last time we hung out. Oh, wow. That was when we were finishing the bourbon that came from my aunt's funeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was some good, good bourbon. Yeah, celebrating celebrating her life with a little taste of golden sunshine. Hey, man, <laughs> like, if you're looking for bourbon, there's no, there's no better place to go than Kentucky and Louisville specifically. Yeah. Like, we've got such good prices around too, here. I think on the last episode we talked about coffee. Now we're talking about bourbon. Hey, Kentucky. I uh, mean, coffee's like a anywhere kind of place, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, bourbon comes from the... From our home From state. our heart. Yep. <laughs> Yeehaw! Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, to start things off tonight, uh, I'm going to talk about the Beatles' Hard Day's Night. Oh. And not the album, but the film A Hard Day's Night. Oh, okay. So this was released in 1964, um, which is earlier than I'm used to when it comes to the Beatles. Okay. I kind of think of two eras. When it comes to the Beatles, there's the earlier era when it, when it was more straight up rock and roll and kind of more targeted to being almost like what you would consider a boy band mm-hmm. would eventually evolve into. Sure. The Ed, the Ed Sullivan. The Ed Sullivan, mm-hmm. Screaming Girls kind of phase of the Beatles. And there's a lot of really good hits from back then, too. But they are more like your the subject matter, at least, are more like your typical like falling in love, missing people. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of subject matter. Whereas toward the later parts of their career, they got a lot more trippy and weird. Like when they started yeah. experimenting with drugs and, you know, going to India to study with the Maharashi and things like that. Sure. But this took place, um, this movie takes place when it's right smack in the middle of Beatlemania. Okay. So first Beatlemania or second Beatlemania? Like first. we're talking, okay. Like um, this was. Take it to ride. Yeah. Okay. Just after they were on Ed Sullivan. I think Ed Sullivan was in 1963 because I remember it was a big deal because it was the first happy thing that happened after JFK was assassinated. Oh. But um, this is when they were really popping off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what the movie itself is about it's got a very loose plot because, of course, that's not the focus. But it starts, right. yeah, it starts on a train from Liverpool to London, mm-hmm. and they're all going. All the Beatles are going to London to record a few songs and get film while they're doing it, and then also to record a kind of television show in front of a live audience. Okay, um, and it's of course it's all in black and white, yeah. which is it's a classic look uh, for the Beatles, especially. It just suits this movie so well. I was going to say, 65, they should have been able to do color if they well, wanted to. Yeah, so in 64, I think it was... you could have. Yeah, you could have easily done color. It would have cost a little bit more, but I think it could have been to do with the aesthetic, or it could have been just that's uh, how much money they wanted to spend on it. Sure, man. <laughs> I mean, if it works in, in uh, black and white, then... Yeah. Oh, yeah, so save the money. Makes sense. Exactly. And so... Um, 
the other thing about it, so, so the first part takes place in a train. They're all going to London, and um, for some strange reason, Paul's grandfather is on board. Okay. And he is played by Wilfred Bramble. Okay. So aside from Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr, he's kind of like the fifth main character. <laughs> and he's sort of, uh, he's like, he is an old man, and he's got the kind of the comic relief to, to play off of them. Oh, okay. He's also a plot device, too. Like, sometimes he goes missing, they need to go look for him. <laughs> but he's really just there to... Uh, How many times does he go missing? I think probably just once. Oh. Um, so that just kind of sets up the loose structure of the plot. What really makes it an important... Part of what makes it a really important film, in my mind, is it lays the groundwork for what would become a music video. Oh, okay. So you don't just have footage of them performing with their instruments. Mm -hmm. um, the title track, A Hard Day's Night, is from them going from the train station mm -hmm. and getting to their studio. And the entire time, they're being chased by all these screaming fans and just running in it. It's really interesting because it's all it all comes off on the surface as fairly lighthearted. Mm -hmm. But then when you think about everything that that level of celebrity have involved, and you can feel the pressure of it and the... And the idea that you can't escape it or live even a normal life anymore. I mean, that's like that still hits celebrities nowadays. I mean, the the whole paparazzi and the screaming, adoring fans. Exactly, and it wasn't even new back then. There mm -hmm. were always uh, people in public life that were like that. But to see uh, these people that at least I feel like I can relate to a little bit better mm -hmm. um, than like the image of old time movie stars kind of like coming out on the red carpet or. I don't know, it just, it was really neat, but they, they would, they play it up for a little bit of comic relief too, because there'll be parts of like, they'll all go into a car and then they'll all come out the other side of it. Oh, okay, Or they're yeah. like running down alleys and going um, here and there to get away from the fans that are overwhelming them. Um, but it, it really fits. And it plays off of the Beatles' personalities, too, which really shine through in this movie. Okay, so it sounds like a, like a fun musical romp throughout the uh, early Beatles. Exactly. And it's it's good, too, because the, the way it's structured as a musical, it's not like your traditional Broadway musical where those, they're breaking into songs. That's going to be one of my questions is, like, comparison between this and Broadway musicals. Because yeah. you said it's like the, the songs are incorporated mm -hmm. into the show itself. The songs are incorporated into the show, but usually... They're, they are performing on stage. Mm -hmm. And it is kind of like that. Because there is a kind of music video where it's just artists performing with their instruments. And, oh, okay. you know, there's all the close-ups and you kind of see them. And right. uh, they're smiling and everything. But then the other kinds where it feels more like what I think of as a music video is when the music's playing in the background. Mm -hmm. But then the Beatles are doing things. So A Hard Day's Night is um, them... Yeah, running from the fans. There's running from the fans, yeah. There's another song. I can't remember specifically which one it is. They're all from uh, the album A Hard Day's Night. Okay. But this is when they're all in a field, and they're kind of playing and being playful with each other and just kind of goofing off. Like, there's footage of them, I think, doing, like, a, like one of those sack races, you know, <laughs> and just kind of, like, falling over each other. And, oh, my um, God. That's so Beatles. <laughs> yeah, but it's neat because of the way the direction is. Is they You can tell they kind of just told them to let them play. Um Another part of it I like, it's because the music is the crux of the film. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say, and this should be kind of obvious by now, but if you are not a fan of the Beatles' music <laughs> or um, to some extent their personalities, this mm -hmm. is not going to win you over. Okay, so like this should not push you to 
exactly look like if, if you're looking for something to break into the Beatles, this yeah. is not it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So if, if the Beatles aren't already your thing, um, I wouldn't recommend it. However, if you're even Beatles, Beatles are okay, like that mm-hmm. level, I think it would uh, you would like it because there's so much charm coming through it. Um, Especially nowadays, you probably hit the nostalgia factor exactly. too. Just like listening to all these old songs again mm-hmm. and, and getting that. Yeah. And if you're interested in the DNA of the music video, even because there's so much of that in it, mm-hmm. that I think even from a, like a cultural criticism viewpoint, that could kind of pull you in as well. Um, one thing that doesn't come across all the time in the music itself is the personality of the Beatles. Okay. And well, because you said the person, their personalities do shine through during this yeah. show, but not during the music. Well, I would say it's harder when I listen to Beatles music. I, I feel like Lennon and McCartney wrote almost all the songs, mm-hmm. so it's always from a single voice. But mm-hmm. it feels like that song has that perspective of that voice. Okay. And you don't get all four of them kind of playing off of each other. Or even what their regular personalities are when they're just speaking as as people. Okay. Um, and part of what I thought of as the early Beatles was that they are all kind of almost homogenous. They all had the same haircuts. They all wore right. the same kinds of clothes. Right. But the personalities, the groundwork is all laid in from the beginning. So Paul, he's often, usually people think he's the cutest. People, people usually choose between Paul and John as their favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul is, is is very cute. He's lovable. He's, he's earnest. Mm-hmm. He does have a sense of humor. Um, and I would say that he's kind of like the unofficial leader in sure. my mind. Okay. John is funny, but he's got a very cutting sense of humor. Mm-hmm. He can be a little sarcastic sometimes. He's he's a little <laughs> irreverent. Um, and he's got this kind of like deadpan wit where, who put you down, but you don't even know what's happening until you think about it a second later. <laughs> and so it's just really, it's really cool that that um, side of his personality is in there. Because I always did think he was kind of like that in terms of um, how he came off. And he also seemed a little bit more rebellious than Paul in some ways. Like, definitely took some harder political stances later in life. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, is he one of the, he's one of the ones that pulled away early on, right? He Well, if we want to pull back a little bit further and go into the whole Beatles mythos. Um, <laughs> and I think this is not a fair judgment. Okay. I think it uh, uh, honestly reeks of a lot of sexism. But the conventional wisdom is that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles mm. because when John fell in love with her, he kind of pulled away from her a little bit and then wanted to involve her more. So pulled away from the Beatles a little yeah, bit and involve her more? And, and kind of like the other Beatles weren't okay with that. But it was also one of those things where it's like they'd been doing this nine years. They'd been incredibly successful. Um, and like, I think, too, mm. like it, it was like the end of a cycle that felt natural to me. Okay. And it's kind of like... Uh, so, but yeah, so for this film... Right, so sorry, sorry to pull okay. you away. It's okay, no, I wanted to explain that because I think it is important to kind of like... Because part of how I view this film is this is the early Beatles and mm-hmm. this is how they represented themselves, but you can see the seeds okay. of what they would eventually grow into. Um, okay. George is kind of philosophical from time to time. He also seems like the Beatle that most kind of stays in the background in some ways. Okay. And he has some really good songs. Any of the Beatles songs you've ever heard with sitar in them, mm-hmm. uh, George is responsible for that. He's also mm-hmm. responsible for injecting a lot of Eastern wisdom into the music they eventually made. Sure. Um, and then Ringo is more of like the lovable goof. He, I think he has the best comedic chops. Okay. Especially he does some good physical humor. He does some cool interaction with a couple of like street kids that they, what he meets. 
um, like playing, like they're not really street kids as in they're homeless. They're like kids that are playing hooky and just goofing around. So how much of it do you think is, um, and you probably know more about this, how much of it is like they told them this is how you should be acting, it's like you should be acting like these people, versus like they were like, go um, go play on the fields, go on the streets and like kind of talk to people. Like, I, I think I would have to do a little bit more research, but I have the, well, the sense that it's kind of like they gave them the premise of a scene and mm-hmm. then just sort of let them play off of each other. Okay. Or they could have had a loose script, but then I think if the Beatles improvised or went off of it, it was okay. Okay. Or like they had like, you need to hit these lines, but how you hit them and when you hit them is exactly. kind of up to you. Exactly. And, um... The chemistry between the Beatles is really good. They mm-hmm. they also play off like there's some characters in it that are just like how you would think of as suits. Like they're the producers and the people. Sure. There. And it's always kind of like, are they gonna get back in time to have the performance? Oh. And that's that's sort of where the, the, some of the tension of the plot comes from. Oh my gosh. Um, but it is really good. It's it's a really well um, well put together film, well produced. Mm-hmm. It never really drags. What really impressed me is that it's a lot better than it had to be. Okay. Because anything that you would have slapped the Beatles on in 1964 would have sold a mint. It would have been fine. Yeah, yeah. but they they made a really high quality, um, basically what's a 90-minute music video mm-hmm. in some ways, but really nailed um, all the different dimensions that, that took it to make a really high quality film. Actually, the reason I watched it recently is because I rented it. I borrowed it from Impulse from the library. Okay. And then when I was looking at the DVD case afterward, I saw, oh, it's Criterion Collection. Do you know anything about Criterion? No. Okay. It's kind of like this um, very high quality, like, remaster, um, either DVD. I think they're all DVDs now. Okay. But it's kind of considered you have to be part of a canon in order to get published as a Criterion film. Okay. And so the fact that this was released as a Criterion, as part of the Criterion Collection, kind mm-hmm. of like... It gives it it's this air of quality or almost like um, a cultural heft. Okay. So, like, you wouldn't necessarily see uh, an Elvis movie released in the Criterion Collection necessarily. So you could consider a landmark. Okay, I'll ask you yeah. one question before mm-hmm. we uh, move on too far. Uh, does it stand up to the test of time? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. And I think that, um, honestly, people that are making music uh, if you, if somebody could make a version of A Hard Day's Night, like the same kind of structure of having live performances of them as a band, playing fictionalized versions of themselves, having music videos kind of going on in the background, and the fact that nobody has tried it again, or maybe they have, and it's just flown under my radar, mm-hmm. it seems like a formula that you could definitely go back to, Okay, but put, put so much of your own spin on it that you could make it like unique as well. And it wouldn't seem kitschy? It wouldn't no. seem like over the top, like, oh, God, this, seems so, this feels so old. I don't so think old. so. The okay. hardest part would be to have a fictional version of real people without creating, like, unnecessary drama. Drama. Right. I think part of what makes it work is that it's lighthearted, mm-hmm. but it's lighthearted in a way that's not cheesy. So you would need something that's lighthearted nowadays. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Cool. But those are the final chords of what I have to say for Hard Day's Night. Hey. <laughs> so I went on a trip to Canada recently. Canadian. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yes, they do all talk like that. It's great. Um, but since I was going into Canada and flying halfway across um, of, across Canada, I had plenty of hours to read a book. So I finished one book and then started another book, which I'm going to talk about, and almost finished that on the flight. Wow. It was, well, yeah. 
Were they audio books or written books? Written books. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Artemis, a book written by Andy Weir, the same guy that wrote The Martian. Okay. Uh, the Martian was a really big book. Um, got turned into the movie with Matt Damon. In got it. turned into a movie with Matt Damon. In it. it was a really big book, I think, back in 2017. Yeah. Um, it's the book if that, like, anytime I meet an engineer or, I, like, I'm talking with an engineer, I know him pretty well, I ask them if they've read The Martian. If not, I recommend it to them. Yeah. Because... I haven't read it myself, but I know a few things about it. I know it's really hard sci-fi. There's a lot of technical information in it. Mm-hmm. And I also know that it was originally self-published before it became kind of a phenomenon, which mm-hmm. is impressive as well. Yeah. So Andy Weir um, published it, and it was a The Martian was a huge, a, a huge um, critical success. Um, and the book itself is fantastic, and it's essentially about Martians about a guy that gets stuck on Mars and he has to use science in order to save himself. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is Artemis. Artemis was his second book. He just released it back in, I think, 2018. And um, it's written from the perspective of... So The Martian, written by... the pers- Or is from the perspective of a white guy that gets stuck on Mars. Um, Artemis is written from the perspective of a character by the name of Jasmine Bashara. Okay. A um, Muslim, Muslim woman on the moon. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the whole concept is that, um, and I think the year is like 2070, mm-hmm. 2080, Earth has colonized the moon and has built um, permanent residencies there for people to live in. That's neat. And um, So it's kind of like a near future. Right. Which is very similar to the Martian. Mm-hmm. See, when I, when I heard about it, because um, when Artemis came out, I'll give you a quick heads up. It got not great reviews. Yeah. And essentially the consensus from a lot of people was it's not as good as The Martian. Yeah, I think, well, I think for a lot of artists, there's the cliche of the sophomore slump. And, and a lot of times if people have had really successful first works, having a second one that lives up to it can be a real challenge. Right. And, and here's what I would say. Artemis, no, it's not as good as The Martian. The Martian's really good. Yeah. Artemis is good. Well, it seems too that he was kind of trying to push himself a little bit, like choosing a character whose identity wasn't so similar to his own. And right. also injecting contemporary issues. One thing that I that was a neat illusion when you said she's a Muslim main character mm-hmm. is that the moon is a symbol of the Muslim faith. Like if mm-hmm. you see the crescent um, symbol of, of right. Muslim, so that's neat that they he thought to go together like that way. Right, and it's it's very interesting. So the where, where the Martian is about a soul, a singular person um, having to use like these small um, areas of science to get everything working. Um, since Artemis takes place in a um, what am I thinking of a colonized area, you don't have like the she needs to maintain this like one small piece and this it's this whole ecosystem and this whole um society that's built up around it that she needs to help but i guess is it also different because it's not necessarily at a point of crisis because martian was all about survival uh yes yes and no i mean it is it keeps the tension pretty high throughout the whole book um let's see so uh jazz who's our main character is a essentially she was brought to the moon as a child at the age of six and has lived there her whole life. She's in her 20s at this point in the book. And she's pretty much gotten by by smuggling things um, from Earth to the moon. Um, oh, neat. That's th- a really cool... Because you kind of think of um, Star Wars characters like Han Solo, and that's... But it's, it's neat to see that brought to a more practical... Um, 
to mention, but of course that's exactly what happened. You would right. have to have people putting contraband and, and things like that. And they also like they keep you on her side because she's smuggling things to the moon, but the things she's smuggling are like cigars, weed. Like it's nothing like she's not smuggling guns to the moon, but she's like she's smuggling things like um uh, cigarettes to the moon because you can't have cigarettes in a spa- in a moon base because if anything catches fire, that's a huge problem. Right. So, and it's also if you're pumping oxygen in, right, that and makes the, it more dangerous too. Right. So um, it just makes sense. But like people will want people want these things, so they'll get them however they can. So she ends up as a smuggler. Um, and in early on in the book, she's friends with this guy by the name of Trond. Um, which I know. Here we get into the super kind of clumsy sci-fi name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, uh, she's friends with this guy, and it, it doesn't go that far. Like, okay. like they do name all the base, uh, the um, space station names, like um, Armstrong. Um, oh, that makes sense. Uh, Aldrin. Aldrin yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, um, named after famous astronauts. So they don't, they don't get too sci-fi about that. Which was one thing that I was worried they would do is get too sci-fi. Yeah, the guy's name's Tron. There's nothing you can do about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's this rich guy that she smuggles for, and he wants her to um, essentially do a crime to help him out. Okay, so he's he's kind of asking her to do something more than what he's been asking for her. To right, do. Um, and she does it, and then everything goes downhill from there. Okay. And it gets to this really interesting story of like. These different people that are on, that are all stuck in this space station, how they interact, and kind of like the, um, kind of the espionage that goes behind that, and the, um, like the relationship between the Earth and the Moon. And it must sounds a little bit like a sci-fi noir. It kind of is. That's cool. Um, and it, and it starts off. I don't. I don't want to say it's all noir because noir like, like holds dark and like very heavy tones throughout the whole thing. It does get very lighthearted. Well, and it seems like the characters are somewhat morally ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Well, Jazz is this kind of, um, how do I put this, sarcastic ass? Yeah. So, um, like, she keeps a very... Sure she, <laughs> yeah. she keeps a very lighthearted tone throughout the whole book. And if you've ever, if you read The Martian um, and you read this, you'll notice a lot of the same... Um, um, kind of reactions to people's comments between okay. uh, the character in The Martian and her, just because that's kind of Andy Weir's writing style. Yeah, you can hear his voice coming through a lot. Right, but um, he uses the character as um, more of a backdrop because she's this, like I said, she's this um, Muslim woman on the moon, but she's not a good Muslim. So she's like, she's gotten in trouble with her dad because she's like, smoke, she smokes weed all the, uh, she was smoking weed when she was in high school no! and drinking <laughs> and like doing, doing all the things that like will get your parents upset with you. Yeah. So, um, she's not like a, she's, she doesn't hold that line and she, it makes it a little more, she makes it a little more dimensional, a little, yeah. little more of an interesting character. Yeah. Like to have this background that she's like kind of pushed away from, but also realizes where she's from. And I think a lot of people can relate to that too, not just Muslims, because there's people that are, they are culturally a certain religion or group, but then they not, um, they don't follow it so closely that it's a huge part of their identity. But right. It, but it, they're never going to get away from it completely. Right. Because that's how they were raised and how they came up. Right. So she recognizes a lot of things about that about her background on that. Um, but yeah, a few things about the book overall. Um, the science in it, solid. Okay. Like that's one of the that's one of the things that I really um, that I loved about The Martian is, um, in The Martian, he gives you like this is 
uh, he often does things like, this is how I'm thinking I'm going to solve this problem. And this is what I actually did, and this is what happens. Okay. And here it's similar, um, except it's a much more, okay, I'm doing this. At, like, she'll plan a few steps ahead. She's like, I'll do this and this and this, and it should work. And then as she's doing those things, oh, crap, something went wrong. Okay, how am I going to readjust? Yeah. <laughs> oh, crap, something else went wrong. Okay, uh, how, do, how do I fix it from here? And it's a lot of those steps. Yeah. Um, so it seems like there is some science-based problem-solving that mm-hmm. goes along with it. There's a different kind of plot to set all of that up. Does there is there a sense of a shared universe with the Martian or any kind of allusions to the the original work? Uh, no, there's not. Uh, I had to think. For How a second. are their timelines set up? Like, do they take place around the same time? They would take place around the same time, and I think the idea is. Um, let's say there's only so much money in the world and we needed to either choose if we wanted to travel to Mars, similar to how we traveled to the moon, or if we wanted to colonize the moon. And in this one, in the, in the Martian, they decide to travel to Mars. In this one, they've colonized the moon. And it's, um, the way they explain it is actually really interesting. Essentially, it's, um, all of the areas on the moon are either owned or controlled by... Nigeria? Okay. It's an it's that an seems Af- very unlikely though. Well, so here's here's the thing. It's yeah. a it's an African it's a small African country and the logic he goes through and he explains it in it's like there's three reasons they could do it. Um one, there's like no legislator on legislation on how to conduct space travel. So you can be as risky as you want, which means you can be cheap about things. Two, it's on the equator, which te- technically makes your space travel easier okay, because you can sense. use the earth more as a slingshot. Um, so like through like, and then three, oh yeah, three, there was one particular person who found this out and realized what they could do. And if they could get enough investment, then they could get this whole situation set up and running. Okay. Um, yeah. See, I was wondering too, if rare earth metals are going to come into it. Cause I know that's one thing in Africa is a lot of rare metals. Mm-hmm. And if those ever started to run low, I imagine the people that still had control of them might have like a an upper hand too yeah and it's it's uh but it was very interesting because he again he is very good about the science and we're in the martian it's the small science Mm -hmm. like okay i need to generate this much energy i need to plant this many potatoes if i want to survive i need to do this and this one it's so much more abstract okay um I know that everything, and he goes through the things like, I know that this whole space station needs to be built through aluminum because there's a lot of aluminum uh, on the moon. So there would be a lot of materials there to smelt down to make aluminum on the moon. It would be... They've actually figured out ways to extract raw materials from the moon itself and not just have to bring everything. Because I know that would be very expensive too. Right. Well, that's the thing is they really, like, he has to go, okay, they have to realize early on that you can't transport everything from the earth. Like, that's just not physically possible to build the ecosystem that you would have to build. So you'd have to use the materials on the moon. Okay, what materials are there? Well, moon dust has a lot of this chemical in it. Okay, we can smelt this down and we can create oxygen and aluminum and silicon out of it. So now we have glass, aluminum, and oxygen. And that's what people need to survive. Okay, so those are the kind of basic materials that they have to work with and mm-hmm. kind of build a, a small colony with. Yeah, and, I, and the book itself t- takes place well after the colony is built, um, though they do reference a few of those things early on about, like, the building of the colony and how they're doing that. But the book itself takes place, like, well after that's been done. Once it's been a little established. Mm-hmm. Probably about, like, 10 to 15 years in the future after it's been built. How do you think about 
the prose, does it feel good to read it? Do you, yes. It doesn't feel clunky or no. awkward or anything like that? Uh, he has a similar uh, writing style to The Martian. Um, everything is very fast-paced, um, very uh, hit a point, cover it, hit a point, cover it, hit a point. And there's like, it, it keeps moving on and keeps building itself. It has about, uh, it has a couple small arcs in it. Um, so like you do have um, build, 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 moment of tension, climax, fall off. Mm-hmm. Um, on a couple di- uh, at a couple different points. So there's some narrative arcs in there. So there's That's good. good. So there's some good narrative arcs, and it does keep. And he's he's been very good, and I don't know if it's what he learned from the Martian or just his own knowledge, but he's been very good about like solid writing styles. Yeah. One, one thing I have a hard time with is enjoying novels that I can't actually just get pleasure in from an aesthetic level. Like the just reading it doesn't come off the page well. Mm-hmm. It's almost yeah. But I'm glad that this one because. That's the other thing too, is since he only has two books, I didn't know if he developed that kind of a sophisticated style that is enjoyable to read. Right. I can't wait to see what he comes out with next. Um, Artemis, highly recommend it. It's one of those, if you haven't read The Martian or Artemis, read The Martian first. Okay. Once you've read The Martian, if you like The Martian, take a look at Artemis. You might like it. I wonder, um, since The Martian did so well as a movie, if they're going to... Because it almost seems like Artemis has enough of a narrative arc. It could even be like a season of a TV show. Well, or... that was the thing I was looking at. Is like this, and I was when I was reading, it's like this could be a movie. It could be a TV show. I think you'd have a lot of uh, downtime. Okay, so you um, could you could you don't think it's too much story for just a single movie? Okay. No, I think I think it's enough story for a single movie, and it's about the length that you'd want for a movie. I think it's a very similar length to The Martian well, as well. It would be cool, too, to have a woman of color, um, and especially a Muslim woman, feature as a main character in a science fiction story like mm-hmm. that, too. And her being very irreverent. Oh, yeah. so hilarious. So <laughs> the, the, that's the other thing is that I do want to mention. It's so funny. You have to get somebody really funny to play her. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's but highly recommend it. Check it out if you haven't yet. Uh, check out the Martian if you haven't checked that out either. So okay. Well, um, so we have two very different kinds of things to recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I'm hoping this inspires you listeners uh, to check some things out. If you like music, you can go, or at least the Beatles and the early rock and roll go with that. And you can also check out some cool sci-fi that you might not have been exposed to yet. Um, but yeah, I'm glad. I didn't know anything about Artemis, so I'm glad, mm-hmm. I'm glad I learned a lot tonight. Yep. Okay. Uh, we did want to thank you so much for listening to Hip Squared. Uh, if you'd like to check out more of our audio content, you can do that um, at AmericanFantastic.com. We have all of our episodes of Hip Squared there, and all the episodes of the American Fantastic Radio Hour. If you'd like to keep up with the show, the best way to do that now is to subscribe to us either on Google Podcasts or iTunes, or you can check out and see if you're... Uh, if we're on your favorite podcatcher yet, um, you can also support the show by becoming a member of American Fantastic on Patreon. Anything helps. Uh, helps us invest in equipment, just spend more time doing this. Uh, we love doing it, but it also uh, costs money to keep this engine running. Uh, we're produced tonight by Mayplex Monk. If you'd like to... Ch- <laughs> Oh my. That was a long... Have we been infested by... That was a long clip. <laughs> if you want to check out more of Mayplex's work, you can go to mayplexmonk.com. Um, and 
please share us on social media. Like yes. American Fantastica on Facebook. Tell a friend about us. Uh, we definitely love uh, for other people to get to know about the show. And we'd also love to hear from you. So uh, you can leave us a comment on Facebook. You can email us at AmericanFantastic at gmail.com. And... Um, yeah, keep up with American Fantastic. We have a spring update that's coming out soon. Hopefully by the time this gets posted, it'll have gone up or be very close to coming up. So you can see um, photography, some visual art, uh, drawings and paintings and things like that. Uh, where you, I'm writing a feature of a local artist named Yoko Molotov, who has Ooh. a really cool comic series called Nightshade. Uh, so you can check her out, too. She also did the back cover of uh, Delusions of Grandeur, Stories and Poems. She has some really cool zombie art for us. So uh, she's definitely a friend of American Fantastic. We're, we're excited to feature her. So, yes, thank you very much uh, for checking us out. Troy, is there anything I forgot? No, I think we got it all. All right, we'll see you all next time. Toodles. Toodles.